bum 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 that's right it's the commute olympic edition what up welcome into commute i'm dave and i'm jay and i'm wondering if we're gonna get in trouble for that like are we licensed to use that music i mean that was very close you're listening to commute the podcast congratulations you'll be smarter when you get there In honor of the 2020 Olympic Games, this is a special edition of the show. We have three Olympic topics for you today, and you will be smarter about the Olympics when you get to your destination. On this special edition of Commute, every Olympic athlete dreams of one day standing on the podium for a medal ceremony. But what's that medal actually worth? So it has to be a dream come true to have your city host the Olympics, right? But for many cities, the experience can become a long-term nightmare. Being an Olympic athlete means you are literally the best in your country at your sport. I mean, I'm kind of a track guy myself. Jay is a little more curling. But what does it take to make the games? Hint, a lot of calories. All of that on this special edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Jay, I have always wondered about this. Okay, outside of eternal glory, what is an Olympic medal actually worth? When I think about this, I actually think it's kind of multifaceted, right? There's the actual value of the physical medal. Like if I were to win a gold medal and try to melt it down and sell it, what would it be worth? But then there's also, in my opinion, the more interesting value of what do the winners earn? because they won the medal in terms of future earnings and also are they paid when they win. So before I get too deep on this, Jay, and and dive in, I actually want to ask you about your history of awards. Do you have a medal, maybe a past trophy that you won, perhaps a certificate you got from Boy Scouts, something that you've received that means just a little bit more? Well, I have a shelf full of participation trophies for youth sports. Uh, I also have several medals from the 90s Book It program. A couple Science Olympiad medals, and that's that's about it. For people that have been listening to Commute now um, for 20-plus episodes, that perfectly describes you. If they didn't know you, they now know you. For me, it's probably the uh, medal I won in Biddy Buddy Basketball where they misspelled my name. So they didn't just misspell my last name. They actually called me by my dad's name. So the medal says Kevin Trovsi. It was a double (laughs) insult. So, Jay, let's start with the physical side of an Olympic medal. Okay, since 1912, the actual gold medals that winners receive haven't actually been made of gold. For example, this year... The Japanese-designed medals at the Tokyo Olympics are actually all silver medals coated in about six grams of gold. While prices would obviously fluctuate, a gold medal won at this year's games at face value could resell for about 800 bucks. While a silver medal is valued at half that amount, roughly $460, and a bronze, well, you'd be asking for change for a 20. The resale value, though, can be incredible. 
Mark Wells, a member of the famed 1980 U.S. hockey team that inspired the movie Miracle on Ice, do you believe in miracles, sold his gold in 2010, Jay, for $311,000. And in 2013, one of Jesse Owens' gold medals from the 1936 Berlin Olympics wound up somehow on the auction circuit following his death and ultimately sold for $1.47 million. Just a little bit more than the $800 that a gold medal could fetch you today. Seems like the obvious is true, right? That like, as you go up in status to the Olympics, your medals are going to be worth more. So if you're talking about like one of Michael Phelps gold medals, uh, it's going to be worth a lot more than, you know, the guy who got a gold for fencing that nobody knows about trying to, you know, sell his medal at a pawn shop. But here's the really interesting side of this to me, Jay. How much is it worth to the athlete long term? Well, for starters, it obviously depends on the country that the winner comes from. So in the U.S., gold medal winners are paid $37,500 for their victory, while a gold medal winner from the Philippines gets paid about 20 times that amount, bringing in almost $750,000. And this money does not come, I will note, from the International Olympics Committee. It comes from the sending country. Some other countries of interest, Italy, 213000 for a gold, Japan, 45,000, Australia, 15,000. Oh, and the silver and the bronze in the U.S., 22,500 for a silver and 9,000 for a bronze. Now, before you feel bad for these American athletes, Jay, here in the U.S., as I alluded to before, we have an economy that values fame and success. Some U.S. athletes are just a little more famous like gymnast Simone Biles or swimmer Katie Ledecky. They're on Wheaties boxes, they're in commercials, they're featured on apparel. All of these are money-making opportunities that became available because of Olympic success. And some U.S. athletes are actually better known for their accomplishments outside of the Olympics, like U.S. basketball stars Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard, who make 50 to $60 million per year, mainly because of their lucrative NBA contracts. For the most part, though, Jay, U.S. Olympic athletes do not get rich from being Olympic athletes. Forbes reports that around 60% of Team USA athletes this year make less than $25,000 a year from their sport. And some even turn to fundraising, like U.S. badminton player Zhang Biwen, who launched a GoFundMe to attempt to raise the $15,000 necessary to travel to Tokyo for the Olympic Games. You're telling me the taxpayers would not support badminton? Like, think of all the stupid things that our government (laughs) spends money on. Like, give the badminton team a plane ticket. Come on. (laughs) So, Dave, you and I are both sports guys. We like to watch sports, um, and we have a long history with it. And so my question for you is, do you have like a, an Olympics that sticks out to you? You know, one that you remember watching more than other ones? You know, I know for me, I really uh, remember the, the one that was held in Athens, right? It really stands out to me. It was hosted in 2004. It was right when I was in high school. Probably Atlanta in 1996 for a couple of reasons. One, and we'll talk about this in the third segment a little. Uh, that was when the famous Carrie Strug, uh, U.S. women's gymnastic moment happened where she he kind of broke her ankle to, to clinch the gold medal. But also as a kid, I was under some false illusion that the Olympics were always in the U.S. 
And so I, I remember that was the moment where I thought, oh, also, well, I'll just go to the next one. I'll be a little bit older. And then my parents told me, actually, it probably will never be back. Yeah, it's just our thing. Yeah, everybody comes here for it, you know. Like you guys just got to play on our home turf every single every single time. You'd think that like a city hosting an Olympic Games would only do good things for the city's economy and, you know, in some ways it can, but for the most part it doesn't really affect the economy in a good way. Let's kind of run through the process first. Like how do I get my city to host the Olympics? And then what does it mean from there? Submitting a bid to the International Olympic Committee to host the Olympics, first of all, it costs millions of dollars. The fee typically ranges anywhere from $50 million to $100 million. Uh, for example, Tokyo lost approximately $150 million on its unsuccessful bid for the 2016 Olympics and then spent another $75 million on its successful bid for 2020, now pushed into 2021. And if you get to host, the cost only goes up from there. London paid $14.6 billion for hosting the Olympics and Paralympics in 2012, $4.4 billion of which came from the taxpayers. Beijing spent $42 billion to host in 2008, and Athens spent $15 billion to host in 2004. Sydney paid $4.6 billion to host in 2000, and Rio de Janeiro is expected to pay over $20 billion by the end of paying off the debt of hosting the 2016 Olympics. Man, in my main memory of the Rio Olympics were that they actually got a lot of flack because they're so it's such an impoverished place, and they had all these people living in tents right outside the walls of these magnificent stadiums. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I mean, the, Rio is probably the best example of how this can go wrong, really, because uh, the cost from this mostly comes from infrastructure that must be added in the wake of hosting the games. Cities have to add roads, enhance or build airports, build rail lines, and construct hotels. Infrastructure costs then can vary widely based on how much existing infrastructure is already in place. So this raises the question, like, namely, what is the benefit to hosting the Olympics? Uh, You know, temporary jobs need to be created to support this citywide infrastructure growth, and the benefits can continue into the future after the games are over. I mean, thousands of athletes and spectators, media and sponsors come into the city for months before the games and then months after the games, which bring in additional money. But these numbers are not always what they seem. Many of the jobs go to already employed workers, and many of the profits end up in the hands of international companies rather than circulating through the city's economy. It's estimated that Salt Lake City, for example, only added 7,000 new jobs in hosting the Olympics, only 10% of the 70,000 promised by city officials when they were pitching it. Uh, In fact, Dave, as of 2016, Los Angeles is the only city in history that has ever realized a profit from hosting the games because much of the infrastructure to support them already existed. London lost nearly $13 billion in 2012. Vancouver lost about $5 billion hosting the Winter Games in 2010. And Beijing lost a whopping $37 billion in 2008. 
Long-term problems exist from hosting as well. Many cities accrue massive debts that have to be steadily paid off for years, even decades to come. Montreal, get this, didn't pay off its debt from hosting the 1976 Games until 2006, 30 years later. (laughs) And many of the facilities created for the Olympics in Athens contributed to Greece's debt crisis and today sit empty. Rio de Janeiro, though, Dave, like you mentioned earlier, highlights this problem maybe the best of any city. Today, Rio still deals with massive debt accrued from hosting the Olympics. Maintenance costs to maintain abandoned facilities, under-equipped public services, and rising crime. And in the years since 2016, Rio has even been late paying teachers, healthcare workers, and federal employees for lack of money. But it hasn't always been this way. The cost of hosting the Olympics has skyrocketed as the cost of broadcasting them has grown since the 1970s. You know, at the end of the day, many cities have questioned their positions as potential hosts because of all this. Uh, In 1972, Denver became the only chosen host city in history to reject its successful Olympics bid after voters passed a referendum against public spending for the Games. So why host, right? Many emerging and developing countries such as Russia, China, and Brazil, they see the Olympics as an opportunity to demonstrate their progress on the world stage and encourage development of their major cities. But these Olympics held in these emerging countries, they often end up running the largest price tag because much of the infrastructure has to be created to sustain the games. Many cities, because of this, are going so far as to withdraw from consideration for future games. Now, I do know for a fact that you own a 2016 Rio Olympic shirt. So basically, when you wear that, which you still do, you're wearing a billboard to show off how the Olympics have have crippled Rio. I don't think I have a 2016 Rio Olympic shirt. Exactly. You've worn it so many times. It's a white shirt that says the Rio Olympics. Oh, yeah, you're right. I do have that shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like somebody needs to take a inventory of their wardrobe. Well, Jay, I grew up with someone that was an incredible female gymnast. Okay, she basically committed her entire childhood to being an incredible gymnast. And in the era of the 90s, so we're talking like U.S. women's gymnastics team success, the 96 Atlanta Games. Now, obviously, I think we should mention there was scandal and sexual abuse, mainly Larry Nassar going on behind the scenes. But at the time, none of us fans knew about that. But I'm sure that she had these dreams. She really did think that she was going to make the Olympics, and she was great. Now, she did go on to have success. She was a Division I college athlete, but it raises this question, and I've actually thought about this quite often. What does it take, what does it actually take to become an Olympic athlete? What is required of you to set yourself up for potentially something like 30 seconds of fame and then being okay with the fact that maybe that's it? Maybe you never get back to the Olympic Games. To start to maybe understand this and to give us some insight, let's look at an interview conducted by the Huffington Post before the Rio Olympics in 2016 with former U.S. men's volleyball player Rob Heidger. I meet people and they say, oh, you play beach volleyball. It must be so great to play on the beach for an hour or two and then you have the whole day to yourself. 
They have no idea <laughs> it's what like, the training is like, hikers. It's say. like so insulting. <laughs> like, yeah, man, it must be nice just yeah. to get out there and just slap the ball around a little bit and then well, just hang out. Well, Jay, he's right. You know, a hiker's day actually looks something like this. Wakes up extremely early, eats breakfast, trains extremely hard from 9 a.m. to noon, eats a quick lunch, starts conditioning drills at 1 p.m., eats a snack, Lifts weights at 3 p.m., typically for two, two and a half hours. Receives medical care from the athletic trainer. Goes home for dinner, spends a little time with his wife, goes to bed around 9, 9.30, and then wakes up the next day and does the whole thing again. Or how about a more extreme example of what it takes? U.S. swimming legend Michael Phelps. Phelps had one of the most demanding schedules in terms of training in history. During his peak training sessions, Phelps would swim a minimum of 80,000 meters a week. Jay, that's 50 miles. He would practice twice a day, totaling between five and six hours for six days a week. Outside of swimming, he'd lift weights, he'd practice kickboxing underwater, and he'd run, all to put him in a positive position to swim six to eight times total during his Olympic Games. His diet, which will at least give you an idea of what the typical Olympic athlete eats and what they need to consume, swimmers obviously burn a lot of calories, was 12,000 calories a day. Starting with breakfast, featuring three egg sandwiches, a five-egg omelet, grits, French toast, and pancakes. He'd end the day with a dinner featuring a pound of pasta, a full pizza, and a thousand calories of energy drinks. And Jay, none of this actually features the skill level needed to be considered for the games. You already must be excellent at what you do, earning entry into Olympic trial competitions to try to qualify. So to recap, it's pretty simple. It's a very simple formula to become an Olympic athlete. Be a world-class talent. Give your entire life away to train and eat everything you can get your hands on. I'm just, I can't get the image of that food out of my head. And I'm thinking about like if you or I ate that in a day, it would just ruin our entire lives. Like we would just ruin our whole life in one day. (laughs) Well, we'd be very, very large. Yeah, you'd be, you'd have to take a sick day like for three days at work to recover. (laughs) Just to recover. (laughs) So have you been watching the Olympics? That are going on right uh, now? A little bit, kind of here and there. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't feel as in tune as I usually am. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's just because this is like my first Olympics where I have children in the house. So I went from zero children to three children between the last two Olympics. So It's kind of appointment viewing for me, but the problem is the, the swims for the medals happen so late that I get myself set like, oh, I cannot wait. And the next thing I know, it's 3 a.m. I fell asleep uh, just kind of sitting up on my couch. We're getting old. But that is it for this week. Thanks for listening to this edition of Commute, the Olympic edition. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Feel free to check us out on social. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey or give us an idea for a topic you'd like us to talk about at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.